0: Beloved, please open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 8. This is probably the next to last sermon, I think, in Romans chapter 8, I think. Uh, not sure, but let's stand together. And um, I want us to go back to verse 28 and begin reading. And uh, we'll read ver- through verse 34, and then we'll pray and we'll dig into uh, this word this morning. Paul writes, And we know, we know... It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful to you this morning for your truth and for your word. And for the way, God, that you have worked in the lives of everyone in this room that belongs to you in Christ. God, I'm grateful for your eternal decree. I'm grateful for your work, Lord God, in time. And I'm grateful for the way that that that, that work that eternal decree and that work in time wraps back around into eternity yet again. I'm grateful, Lord God, for the way that you have provided for us a great salvation we who are great sinners needed a great salvation and you have done it I'm grateful Lord God for the way that you have given to us your holy word by which you instruct us by which you edify our souls by which Lord God you renew our minds by which Father God you 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 know make us to be born again by the work of the Holy Spirit I am grateful to you for your word And I'm grateful to you for the promise of your presence with us, that you never leave us and you never forsake us. I'm grateful, Lord Jesus, for the promise that you are with us until the end of the age. And so even now we know that as we worship, we are in your presence. We are in the midst of the Holy One who is walking to and fro amongst his lampstands. And so, Lord, as we Come to this time in which we seek to hear your voice in your holy word. God, I pray that you would speak to us, Father, clearly and and comp- and just in such a way as our hearts are engaged and, and, and gripped. Father God, I pray that as I stand here, Lord, to preach your word that you would cause me... And and I and I've prayed this already, Lord, that I would have no reliance upon the gifts and the, the the abilities of my flesh whatsoever. That my entire um dependence would be upon your Holy Spirit, and that Lord God you would give me your spirit in abundance, and that I would be nothing but an instrument in your hands to preach your holy word. I'm praying, Father God, that you would just move amongst everyone that is in this congregation. I am praying, Father God, that you would open up ears and open up eyes and and make minds attentive and that lord god you would teach us and train us according to your holy word i pray that we would see what a very serious moment this really is we should never take it for granted that lord god every time that that we gather together in worship and we study your holy word together and it goes forth according to your will and the power of your Holy Spirit. It is a, it is a time when, when the holy touches the earth. And God, I am praying that you would move with might in our midst. Please, Lord God, do what is pleasing in your sight in us. Do what is pleasing according to your purpose in us. Master me. Have full control over every one of my faculties. And Lord God, be the great instructor that we each need you to be for us. Please be glorified. Please exalt Jesus in our midst. Please make much of you, Lord God, magnify the glorious triune God before us, I pray, in the preaching of your word. And I ask this all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You know what I... The more that I am preaching through Romans 8, the more I realize what a rich chapter of scripture this really is. I mean, this is a treasure trove, isn't it? Of God's, of God's timeless truth. It is a fountainhead of divine blessing from the triune God for his people. And it's given to us. I, as I'm reading this, I'm realizing studying, and studying it. I hope you are too, that it's given to us so that we might be established, so that we might be able to stand firm in this present evil age, right? I was actually talking to my family on Thanksgiving Day. I said to them, you know, I'd been in my office. I was writing down some thoughts for this Sunday. And I came in and I said, you know, I really wish that Romans 8 were like 40 verses longer. Because I love this so much. Like, I I don't want it to end. It's just so excellent. And in this particular section in which we are finding ourselves, right, which really began back, I guess, in verse 28, Paul is in the process of answering and dispelling of putting to rest every possible doubt or, or fear or anxiety that the child of God could possibly have that he or she will not be fully and, and finally saved, right? He's dealing with all of these things that can come up and he wants to make sure that we are assured that we really do belong to the Lord God, That there's no way that we can possibly lose our salvation. That we can't be justified one moment and unjustified the next. One moment a child of God and then not a child of God. One moment born again and then unborn again. He wants us to have stability. He wants us to be able to stand firm. He doesn't want us to be blown to and fro by every fear and every concern and every worry. Or by every wind of doctrine. He wants us to be able to stand firm. Like, God doesn't want a bunch of little neurotic Christians running around out there. You know what I mean? Continually wringing our hands. Worried whether or not we might be or not be in Jesus. And so in that respect, this, this text that we're looking at really is a God-breathed, apostolic masterpiece. Of divine truth and of sanctified logic. All right? Sanctified logic. In fact, what we see here is Paul saying, look, you got to reason with me here. you got to think about it. I want you to put your thinking caps on. That's the idea, right? Like, you know, you've heard when you were a kid, at least I, when I was a kid, we would have our teachers would say, now you need to put your thinking caps on now, right? And what that meant was stop thinking like a kid where nothing makes sense and start thinking like somebody where you can rationally build upon one thought after another, right? Nowadays, it's the opposite. Nowadays, it's put on your irrational cap so we can teach you and indoctrinate you in a bunch of stuff that's not really true, right? But back in the day, it meant you need to think. And that's the idea here. I want you to think about this with me. This whole section, right, begins with this bold and unflinching statement by Paul. I mean, this is a really bold statement. When he says in verse 28, We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And I want you to remember, he made this statement now to Roman Christians for whom persecution for their faith in Christ, the hardship and the trials of it, the the ruptured relationships that result, the social stigmas, they were tangible and they were mounting, right? It was not a cheap thing to believe in and, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's something that we are experiencing more and more, you know, in our own nation. And and honestly, I thank God for that. His message here is that no matter what, God works all things for the ultimate good of His people, so that we would be fully and, and completely conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that So that our salvation will be made complete. And then he explained why it must be so, right? The logic behind that. Here's why that has to be so. Here's why there's there's no getting away from this. And he does that by detailing the five golden links of salvation, right? God's specific actions that he has taken to redeem the church. His powerful, you know, actions that he himself has engaged in and by which he has guaranteed the redemption of his people, right? And he begins talking about how God foreknew, right? For loved us. How he, how he, you know, set his sovereign and saving love on his people before we ever existed. And that's intended, you know, to, to really blow our minds. And then he begins to describe how not only is that true, but God has predestined those whom he has foreknown. He is, He's actually laid out, marked out every single boundary of our lives. Nothing's a mistake. It all leads into one direction so that you would actually sit under the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and you would hear the word of God and then you would be effectually called. You would be called by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, and summoned from spiritual death into spiritual life. It should be called to faith. That And then he provides the power, you know, the, the, through that effectual calling, providing the power and the will to trust in Christ for salvation. And as a result, we're justified by that gift of faith so that we could be reconciled to him and we're made children of the living God. Declared to be not guilty and clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then he glorified us, right? From God's perspective, it's a done deal. You're already, you've already been raised up in Christ and soon in your glorified body, you're going to be raised up and be in heaven. From God's perspective, done, right? He will ultimately transform us so that we're much like Christ. Think about that. So that we are as much like Christ as a creature can possibly be. Fit. For an eternity of communion with and delight in God, right? God works all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose because of all of those reasons, the five golden links. And what Paul wants us to see and to know and to believe is that, listen, our salvation is not dependent upon us. And that's a dangerous statement, right? Because immediately somebody who's not really a believer, but an abuser of grace will hear that and go, well, salvation's not on me. I can just do whatever I want. It's all up to God and whatever else happens in the end of the day, you know, it's all on God, right? Those words are not for abusers of grace. They're for faithful Christians. And he wants us to know, look, you didn't fashion your salvation. You didn't initiate it. You didn't accomplish it. You you didn't apply it to yourself. You didn't muster up the faith to believe it and receive it. You, you cannot keep yourselves in salvation. Like, God has done it all. Now, yeah, you've got to believe. Yes, you must believe the gospel. And you must trust in Christ's saving work. And you must surrender to Jesus and follow him as Savior and Lord and pursue the good works that he has prepared for us. And you've got to persevere to the end. But But we don't do that in and of ourselves, do we? It's not something that we do in our own strength or in our own power because God is the source of our salvation. Our salvation depends upon the faithfulness of God, of the God and the Father who has loved us with a sovereign and saving love and who, Paul says, is for us. He's for us. And when he says that, The expectation is that we're going to hear that and go, that is a remarkable thought, that God would be for me, considering all that I am, all that I know apart from Christ, that God would be for me. That is astonishing. Not, of course God is for me. I'm for me. God must be for me, right? We should be amazed by that. And the proof that he's for us is what? The proof that he's for us is this. He didn't spare his own son even one iota of what was required to rescue us, but he gave him, gave him up for us all, right? And that being the case, if God has given us the greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only logical that he will not keep back from us any lesser thing that is necessary to ensure our full and our complete redemption, right? The, the divine logic of it all, it's tremendous and it's unshakable, right? Right? And we go, that, that's proof, man, that is, that's as good as any geometry proof out there. There it is. But even so, in the verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul is seeking to establish and fortify and to make even more invincible our confidence in the irreversible and permanent nature of our salvation. Now, why does he go to such lengths? Why does he keep, as it is, you know, keep addressing a variation on this one theme of our security and our assurance? Why does he keep doing that? Well, you know, on one hand, it might just be as simple as the fact that the truth is, look, faithful preachers of the gospel love to preach the gospel. Right? That's just reality. Faithful preachers of the gospel love to preach the, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We love to engage in expository exaltation in the Lord and in the riches of the gospel, right? Like, if you want to give me something to preach on, the gospel's the best thing, right? But there's more to it than just that. There's more at play here. Paul's got a pastoral heart, right? Paul, like, he's not an ivory tower theologian. Thank God he's not. He's got a pastoral heart and he knows he knows that as wonderful as the truth is that he is presenting that there are times when Christians struggle with believing. There are times when Christians struggle with knowing, like down deep in our heart of hearts, you know, and, 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 and experientially embracing the, the blessing and the benefits of God's redemption of our souls. We can sometimes struggle with assurance, can't we? Can't we? Can't we? We can sometimes struggle with our certainty of God's love for us and especially in light of our continued striving with sin in which we fail all too often. We can struggle with a peace of conscience. We can struggle with joy in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul knows that we need to hear the truth continually. And he knows that what we really need to dispel our doubts and to dispel our anxieties and our fears is solid doctrine and concrete theology. Not fluff. Emotional fluff. Or human philosophy. You know, or sweet nothings. Or human psychology. Or, you know, motivational preacher, just preach to me some motivational stuff that I can put on Twitter and, you know, give me something good. We need the truth. We need words of theological fact that lead to spiritual confidence and comfort. Words that are true of Christians alone. That's what he gives us here. We need bedrock truth that we can stand upon, confident and firm in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we get here. Again, these words are for Christians alone, and and they prove even more conclusively that God is for us. So how does Paul do it? He does it in the way that he loves to do it. He loves to ask questions and answer them, right? Every good teacher does that. Pose the question. Okay, here's the answer, right? He does it again. Look what he does. He, He posts yet another urgent question. He asks this question, beginning of verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect. He said, I want you to think about this now. I want you guys to think about this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, here's what we need to see. Paul is presuming... And, and accurately so, that there are in fact those who will try to bring charges against the elect, right? Accusations or indictments against the elect so as to call into question and nullify our justification in Christ. In other words, he's saying, look, yeah, there are people, there are those that are going to make charges against you. But does that ultimately overturn your salvation in Christ? Before we talk about those adversaries... I want to do something. I want you to get to Paul's answer. I want you to first consider with me the name that Paul uses here to describe Christians. He calls them God's elect. You see that? God's elect. Now, why does he do that? You know, that's a significant thing. Why does he do it? Because he wants to start a theological fight. No, no. Right? We don't believe in election. I mean, I've actually heard preachers that have said that. Like, we don't believe in election. Man, you better. You better. Why doesn't, though, he refer to Christians as believers or or sons and daughters or even those who love God, right, like we just talked about, why doesn't he do that? Here's why. Here's why. Why that word elect? The reason is that Paul wants to emphasize yet again that it is God's essential action in your salvation that makes it to be guaranteed. He chooses to focus specifically and intentionally on, on the work of God, on what God has done. His sovereign choice of some to be the object of His saving love. He wants to remind these Roman Christians again, and I want to remind you, that you didn't choose God. You didn't. God chose you. You didn't love God first. God loved you first. You believed in Christ, yes. But the root cause for why you did is because in eternity, God chose you for that gift of grace. That faith that you possess and by which you lay hold of Christ was not manufactured in the least bit by you. Are you hearing me? It was fashioned by God in you. It was fashioned by the Holy Spirit in you. In fact, if God had not acted, here's the reality about you and I. We would have continued down the road of sin and unbelief to our ultimate destruction and suffering in hell. But God has graciously and in love, chosen you to belong to Him. In fact, Robert Haldane, I love it, he says this, he says, this reminds believers that their election is not to be ascribed to anything in themselves. But it's to be traced solely to the grace and the mercy of God by whom they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So you see, what Paul is doing is he's calling us God's elect to emphasize God's sovereign choice of his people, just as the apostle Peter does when he calls Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, chapter 2 and verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what purpose? So that we might proclaim, he says, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what are we to take from that? Well, look, God doesn't choose a people for himself and then discard those whom he has savingly chosen for salvation. He doesn't do that. God doesn't make mistakes or errors. There are nothing slips, you know, past him. Like nobody, you know, God chooses exactly who he chooses according to his own will, right? And nothing slips past him. You ever been in the grocery market? You know, you've been in the grocery store and you go through with your, this happened to me a lot when our kids were little, we would go through the, the grocery store, right? And you would be specifically choosing the things that you wanted in that grocery store out of all of the items. These are the ones that I am desiring. I want to be my own, Right? And then we'd get up to the cash register to check out. And you'd start emptying all the stuff on a little conveyor belt there, right? And then you would grab something, and you're like, where did this come from? Right? Like, you know, Captain Crunch. Or, you know, something like that. Or, or you know, some goofy, like a spatula for no apparent reason. Like, I didn't grab that thing, right? And then you realized there were other hands grabbing stuff and throwing it in your cart, Right? Well, I didn't keep that stuff because I felt obligated. I put it back over, you know, wherever and just left it there. And was like, you get to put that back when I'm done checking out. That's how that works, right? God doesn't slip up in that. It's not like somebody slips somebody in on the Lord. No, really, he chooses out of his sovereign love exactly whom he desires. And that choice is a permanent one. It can't be undone. It is a permanent choice. Right? Like, here's the thing. When my kids were throwing stuff into the, into the cart, it was a conditional choice. When we got to the front, the condition was, is mom or dad going to break down and buy this for me? Right? It was a conditional choice. God's choices are unconditional. His election is unconditional. He chooses you because he chooses you, and it's permanent. It's permanent. He chose you, he did, deliberately and purposefully. God uses, or Paul uses these words, God's elect, because he wants these Roman Christians, and he wants us to think of ourselves in the most foundational of terms. follow with me. He wants us to think of ourselves essentially and foundationally as the elect of God. As those whom God has chosen, why I don't know, but chosen nonetheless, loved by God with a special love, His own possession, those whom He has set Himself, those whom He has set apart for Himself. I want you to hear me when I say this to you, beloved. I want you to hear me when I say this to you. One of the reasons that trouble and anxiety and fear and worry and uncertainty concerning our standing with God, one one of the reasons that they arise in our hearts is because we do not see ourselves as we truly and essentially are. If you are a Christian, it's not that you're a churchgoer. It's not that you're a worshiper. It's not that you're a lover of God. Not 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 essentially. Not the most foundational root. If you are a Christian, you are the elect of God. You are chosen by him to belong to him. And he doesn't change his mind. That is your essential, fundamental, indispensable identity. Chosen in love by God before the foundation of the world to belong to Him as His precious possession and to receive His grace and His mercy. That is who you are. That is what defines your life. You are chosen by God. Well, isn't that arrogant? No, that's the fact. Some people... Some preachers will say for Christians to refer to themselves as being the elect of God or chosen of God or to rejoice in that, like that's awfully arrogant. That's very spiritually prideful. You shouldn't act like that. That's not, that's really offensive. To not believe, if you're a Christian, that you're the chosen of God is not to be humble and, and spiritually, what, you know what that is? That's unbelief. That's unbelief. I'll speak more to that in a moment. It's unbelief. If this is who God says you are, who are you to say otherwise? Right? Well, I'd prefer, Lord, that you didn't use that term to refer to me. You know, that is God's chosen moniker, chosen descriptor of his people. Now, now, certainly, right, being the elect of God is revealed in various ways. There's certain fruit in our lives, right? Like, you don't just run with that and, and completely ignore, you know, the evidence in your life. Certainly there's fruit, right? There's fruit in a transformed heart and mind. in, in realizing, you know, and recognizing your sin and your guilt and your desperate need for a Savior who is Christ. It's, it's recognized in, in you abandoning all your hope, uh, you know, of salvation, you know, in your imaginary goodness to save you, you know, and, and trusting in Christ is your only hope. It's shown a desire to grow in Christ's likeness an obedient trust that God's word is, you know, the rule of life and, and of faith. You know, those things are growing in us. They're yet imperfect, yes, but they're there. But the root of that fruit is God's election, his sovereign choice of you for salvation. So you got to see who you are. That's the first thing Paul is is, emphasizing. Make sure you see who you are. You are God's elect. You're his chosen ones. Now, does that mean that there will be no one who will bring a charge against God's elect? Of course not. Of course not. Listen, you know, the, the pastime of the world is to take shots at Christians, right? That's one of them. We know that there are adversaries against us. Of course, we know that Satan is our adversary, right? Right? Scripture describes him how? As the accuser of the brethren, right? Who accuses him day and night before our God. Now, I don't know the mechanics of that, okay? And, and I'm not going to spin some Puritanesque picture of that. I'm just not going to do it because I think it's kind of, you know, dangerous to engage in that kind of stuff. Here's what I do know. I don't know how that works specifically. It's just enough for me to know that Satan is against us and that he's our continual accuser. That's enough. We know this world is in opposition to us, right? Regularly, faithful Christians are charged with hypocrisy or, or intolerance or arrogance or pride or narrow-mindedness or lovelessness by those in the world who hate God and who hate His righteous commands and who loathe Christ and His gospel, right? False brothers, Are out there who accuse faithful Christians of being quote unchristian or of being unloving or of being misogynistic or of being fill-in-the-blank phobic for holding to the truth and speaking it in love in open disagreement with the spirit of this age that the false brothers themselves have imbibed, right? Even our own consciences accuse us, sometimes rightly, sometimes not. You know how it goes most likely you have experienced this you you commit some kind of sin right and your holy spirit led and biblically informed conscience rightly convicts you of it right you you are convicted in a real way you grieve over your sin because of the damage that it does to your fellowship with god and because your sin grieves christ you know who saved you you grieve because you want to please jesus not in order to earn his love but because he has loved you from eternity, right? So you hate that sin, you don't want to continue in it, and you're moved by conviction and grief over your sin to confess it and truly repent of it and ask for forgiveness, right? Like the Apostle John describes in his first epistle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So you do that, and you know in your mind, like you know, Theologically, you have been trained well enough in the Scriptures. You know in your mind that, you know, your position, your standing, you know, with God is secure because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf, right? But even after confessing and repenting of that sin, right, which is essential to our spiritual health and growth, and and it is the mark of a true Christian, and not the imposter that can just sin with abandon and treat it with indifference or superficiality, right? You confess it, but even after you do that, you sometimes experience this sort of like constant sort of low-grade guilt, right? This kind of drag on you. That kind of inhibits your prayer, praying, your prayer life, it it inhibits your freedom in worship. Maybe you you think to yourself, you know, you've got this sense that maybe you've sinned one too many times, you know. That once you were on the A team, but now you're on the B or the C team, right? And maybe God doesn't fully forgive you; that you're on some kind of, you know, probation with Him. You know, I actually used to do that when I was younger in the faith. You know I, when I sinned, I would kind of this is so stupid, it's so kind it just doesn't make sense, but when I was younger in the faith, I would sin you know in a way that was grievous to me, and I would confess that sin, and then I would think, like, okay, I'm on probation with God for x amount of time, and and it was really an arbitrary number. I was like I was like a little Catholic Protestant, you know, I don't assign myself this certain days of probation before I am in full good standing with God yet again, you know. And it was just foolishness. It was stupid. I didn't understand really rightly the fullness of the, of the salvation and the, and the redemption that is in Christ, right? But you think to yourself, you know, how can I, how can I have committed this sin and still be accepted by God? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Don't you? Sure you do. You sincerely and honestly confess, you repented of that sin, and yet you're unsure if God really does still accept you. The charges are kind of hanging in the air, right? It's not uncommon there are any number of adversaries that can put us in that kind of a position that might bring a charge against God's people and some of those charges might even be legitimate and factual you know but none of them none of them can nullify your salvation none of them can change your standing with God none of them can overturn our redemption and Paul tells us why in the second half of this verse It's so simple. Even a caveman can understand it, right? Look at this. Paul says to us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Hold on. Hold it. Just wait for it. Wait for it. It's God who justifies. What are you thinking about? He turns again, Paul does, to the theme of God as being the judge, as the righteous judge of all the universe, right, whose verdicts, when he when he pronounces them, are perfect and absolute and unappealable. Justified, remember, is a legal term, right? It's a legal term, a forensic term, we call it. And God, the righteous judge, has declared his elect to be justified in Christ. And once God has made that declaration, there is no one that can overturn that verdict. Well, when does he make that declaration? He makes that declaration at the moment of your effectual calling when he, when he, you know, creates that faith in your heart by which you lay hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are what? Justified. You're justified. Now you might be tempted to say, preacher, I know that. I've heard that. You preach that. Paul's been talking about that. I need something a little more you got to give me something more here. I need something more. Do you? Do you really? I don't think you do. If you understand this rightly. Let's just dive a little deeper for a moment into this concept of God as judge and justifier of his elect. I want you to follow with me now, okay? Again, this is divine logic. Put on your thinking cap. We know that God is sovereign over every soul, Right? 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 Yeah, Scripture teaches that very clearly. God is sovereign over every soul. He's the sovereign judge over every soul. But here's the thing. Not only is God the judge, unlike in our legal system, God is not only the judge, he's also the lawgiver. He's the lawmaker. He's the law declarer. He knows the law perfectly. He is the judge who has laid down and established the requirements of righteousness. It's his law. And he knows every jot and tittle. He knows every single command. He knows the scope of his law. He knows the extent and the intent of his law. He knows all of it, everything. He is an expert in divine law. That's first. Number two is this. Not only is he an expert on divine law, he's an expert on human nature. He's an expert on fallen human nature. He's not only the judge, he's the omniscient creator and judge. And he knows Each one of us fully and completely look he made us he knows us better than we know ourselves and all the ways that we have sinned and all the ways that we will continue to sin. He knows our sinful acts and our sinful thoughts. He knows our sins of commission and our sins of omission. He knows our sins of the hands and the feet and of the mind and of the heart. He knows our outward sins. He knows our inward sins. He knows our presumptuous sins. He knows our besetting sins. He knows our spur of the moment sins. You know, the, the sins of opportunity. He knows all the sins that we would have committed if we'd been given the opportunity to commit it. He knows all. And he's known it from eternity. And he's never going to be surprised by anything. And still he set his love upon us as his elect and determined to save us. That's number two. But there's more. Not only is God the judge. He is also the only just judge. Who has in his justice and holiness. Devised the law upholding and justice honoring plan whereby he can justify, justly satisfy every legitimate charge against us, every single legitimate charge against us on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, while giving to us mercy and grace. He has conceived the judge in his covenant of grace a way that his perfect justice May be satisfied with regard to your sin by another in your place and give to you mercy and forgiveness. It's his plan. It's his plan. He's the one who sent his son into the world as a man, as our representative, to live the life of perfect righteousness before his eyes and respect to the law on our behalf. And then to pay the debt of our sin, past, present, and future, in full on the cross. I mean, understand this. When Jesus died for you on the cross, all of your sins were yet future. All of them. He paid the debt of our sin and full on the cross. He endured the full fury of the wrath of God in our place so that by faith in Christ we could be declared justified and the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled. Right? We've talked about this. God treated Jesus as if he lived our wretched life and committed all our sins so that he could treat us as if we lived Christ's perfect life justified by faith. And the salvation that has been wrought in Christ Look at, it doesn't overturn justice. It doesn't overturn the law. Beloved, it upholds the law. It upholds justice. I mean, remember what this really means. The full scope of justification. Martin Lloyd Jones says it so powerfully. I can't say it better. He says, to justify means more than to pardon. It means more than to forgive. It means that God makes a declaration, a judicial declaration to the effect that he has not only forgiven us, but that he now regards us as just and righteous and holy as if we had never sinned at all. God has justified us in a legal manner, in a just manner. He's taken my sins and put them upon his son. He said that he would punish sin and he has punished sin, but he has punished sin in his son. And because he has punished him, he does not punish me. Justification means that you are cleared and delivered and just in the sight of God as regards your past, present, and future. It is a once-for-all act. So all conceivable charges, all of them, that can be made against you are already answered in God's declaratory statement about his having justified us. he's right. And, beloved, for this reason, justice... That once declared us guilty. Now being fully just satisfied in Christ. Justice is now the guarantee of our salvation. Justice. That sounds weird. Usually salvation is by grace. Justice. Is the guarantee of our salvation. Justice which once stood against us. Is now our great friend. Who says that no charge can stick to us. Because Christ has answered them all. And for us to be charged with that for which Christ has paid would be unjust. Our salvation is, listen, it is not only by grace, it is verified by justice. Our salvation is motivated by God's love and his mercy, but it's established upon, it is established upon his everlasting and his unchanging justice. Right? We're not done though. I want you to think about this. Get this. God is not only judge. And not only is he omniscient and fully aware of all of our sins, and not only is he the architect of our salvation, but listen to me, he is the offended party. Isn't he? Isn't he the offended party? Our greatest offense, no matter what sin it may, that we may commit, is ultimately against God himself. Isn't it? So think about that. The one against whom we have sinned, and against whom we continue to sin is the very one who has declared us to be justified in Christ forever. Who has any standing to question God's judgment? Who does? Who has any question or has any standing to question God's determination here? Think about it. Look. Let's say somebody sins grievously against me, right? And you're my friend. And I have forgiven that person who has gr- sinned grievously against me. Well, there is no issue. We are completely reconciled to one another and everything's good. But you're over there going, I am so angry at that person. I can't stand them. I hate the way they sinned against you. I hate them. I'm going to look at you and say, are you mentally ill? No, Really? What standing do you have to be angry at that person for the sin they committed against me? Oh, well, I mean, you put it that way, you know. When God says we are justified, the one against whom we have sinned, who has the right to step in and say, oh, not, 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 step in and say, not so quick, Lord, not so quick. Now, that person there, that sin they committed against you, like that wasn't just any average ordinary sin right there. That sin deserves, that sin's got legs. That sin deserves more judgment. More judgment than the eternal fury of the wrath of the living God that he poured upon his son. you mean more than that? Are you with me? One last thing. God's jurisdiction as judge, it's universal and it's ultimate. Isn't it? Look, he's the supreme and final judge of the universe. And so if he declares you to be justified, you are eternally justified. Again, as I mentioned earlier, there's no going back between being justified and not justified. And justified again, then being lost again. Listen, for you to be unjustified, once God has declared you to be justified, would require someone with a greater authority and a greater sovereignty... And a greater moral right than God to make that declaration. And that being, quite frankly, does not exist. doesn't exist. Moreover, he, we've got to see that any charges that are brought against us, really, I want you to think about this now. Any charges... That are brought against us with the determination that somehow these charges can overturn our justification. Somehow we can lose it. Even if they're legitimate charges, I want you to think about this. Any charge brought against us are ultimately charges against God himself. And against his sovereign and electing love for us. It's charges against God's love. It's charges against his covenant of grace with us in Christ. It's charges against him as the sovereign God of the universe. Who can bring a charge against God? It's absurd. No, there's a world of truth in this. A world of truth and encouragement in that statement. It's God who justifies. Don't just read it on the surface. There's a world of truth there, right? Because of what Christ has done for us, God declares us to be justified. And listen, here's the thing. What God has done for us through the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ to carry out his plan of redemption cannot be overturned. And here's another reason why. Because it would make Christ an insufficient and failed Savior. It would mean Jesus was just as imperfect as any of us. And that's why Paul asks the next question. And answers it as he does. Look at it. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? I want you to see what's going on here, right? Paul's excited. Paul is like on a Holy Spirit-inspired and getting God-breathed role. Like, he's excited, man. And so, to use a football term, he's just going to take this thing to the house. Right? He's going to take it all the way. Let's just go all the way now. Right? Charges. Okay, charges. But how about condemnation? He's just going to take this thing all the way. Who's to condemn you? Who can possibly condemn you? Who or what has the power to do that? Who has the power to overturn the declaration that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And the idea is, Paul has never met that guy because he doesn't exist either. Paul is saying, in essence here, really, what he's getting at is this. is like, man, don't forget who Christ is. Don't forget who Jesus is. Don't forget who King Jesus is and and what he has done. You need to remember what your Savior, what your Lord has done. You need to get your eyes off yourself. You need to get your eyes off your situation. And you need to get your focus on him. And when you do that, all of your fears will evaporate. And he says, look, condemnation for you as a Christian, for you as one of God's elect, it's absolutely impossible. And it's, it's absolutely impossible. I'm going to give you four reasons why, right? Then I want you to notice that in these four reasons, this is what this is that we're looking at. This is a summary, a perfect summary of the Lord's mediatorial work, right? That's really what it is. It's it's a perfect summary of everything that he has done and still continues to do for and because of us. Now, I want you to realize something now. We're looking at this. I want you to think about this. Okay. I want you to realize that none of these things that Paul lists right here would have happened to Christ had they not happened to him for us or on account of us. These things would not have happened to him had they not happened to him for us or account, on account of what he has done for us. In other words, you understand Apart from us being redeemed, there would have never been an incarnation and no events of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. You understand that? He would would never have taken to himself human flesh. There would have been no earthly, quote, life story to tell about Jesus. There, There would have been no cross, no resurrection. There would have been no exaltation, no continued intercession. He would have remained in heaven. That's the point that Paul is making here. There was no other reason for for the Son to take to Himself human flesh and to do all that He did except for our justification that leads inexorably to our glorification. And if all that Christ has done for God's elect ultimately proved to be ineffective, and if even one of the elect, even just one of the elect were to be fully and finally lost, all of it would have been worthless. All of it. Why bother with the incarnation? Why Why suffer such indignity? Why lay aside the glories of heaven? Why not, you know, why, why willingly suffer the wrath of God and, and, and rise again and be received in heaven if He did not accomplish for us something that is invincible and indestructible? But he has. We can't be condemned. That's an unconditional impossibility because of what Christ has done for his elect. Now look at the declaration. The declaration is what? Back in Romans chapter 8, and verse 1. What's the declaration? There is now therefore what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a permanent, that's an invincible declaration. And it is because of these four statements. Look at them again. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God and who who indeed is interceding for us. And I want you to see that's an airtight case. There are statements of fact that are based upon truth that can never be refuted and which form the ultimate ground of our salvation and even more, the assurance of our salvation. Follow with me, okay? This is logical now. First of all, Paul reminds us of this fact. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who died. Now, none of us are going to go, really? Like we didn't know that. Of course we knew that. We know that Jesus is the one who died, right? But Paul reminds us of this once again to drive home the point that when Christ died, the only reason he did so was to suffer the condemnation that you and I deserve. He died to pay the penalty of our sin. All of it. He had no reason to die. Why? Because he's sinless. And the wages of sin is death. Right? But Christ had no sin. So then why would he die? There's only one reason. He died for us. He died for your sin and for mine. He died, you know, a substitutionary, sacrificial death in our place. He died to satisfy the justice of God against you and me and suffer our condemnation. There's no other reason that he would die. And especially as he did, except for him to take upon himself the condemnation that rightly belongs to us. Who can condemn us? Who can condemn us when Christ has died for us? But not only did he die, he was, he raised, he was raised. God raised him from the dead, right? Well, why does that matter? Here's why. Because the resurrection from the dead, first of all, proves Christ's identity as the Son of God, right? It reveals Him as the Son of God in power, right? Not only that, though, the resurrection validates and verifies Christ's stated mission to seek and to save the lost. It authenticates that God the Father was satisfied in His sacrificial offering of Himself for the salvation of the elect. The resurrection matters. And the bodily resurrection specifically. Look, Paul staked everything on the resurrection, didn't he? Didn't he? I mean, listen, man. Christ's death is the basis of our justification, right? And his resurrection is the verification that he was successful. It's the evidence. It's the assurance of the fact that we're justified and accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ and that the debt of our every sin has been paid in full. I want you to think about it like this. If even one of your sins that had been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ had been left unaccounted for, had been left unpaid, had been left on the head of Christ, if even one of them escaped Christ's notice, listen to me, he would not have risen from the dead because the debt of sin would still be upon him. that's why Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Christ's resurrection is proof that your sins are paid in full. Every single one of them. Not one of them went unnoticed. Not one of them went unaccounted for. Christ has paid the debt of every single one of them. And the assurance that you're justified and accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of them is that Christ rose from the dead. Now, who can condemn us when Christ has risen for us? But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only was he raised, he's at the right hand of God, right? The writer of Hebrews says, he is... In in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. How can He do that? Here's why. Because after having made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that mean? To sit at the right hand of God. It's a picture of the fact That the Lord Jesus Christ has been given by the Father the most exalted position of power and authority and honor in all the universe. He rules and he reigns with this sovereign dominion as King of kings and Lord of lords. What theologians call Christ's heavenly session. What Paul wants us to understand, he wants us to understand that in this statement is that Christ has been exalted to the position at the right hand of God the Father. He's been exalted to that position as a reward for what he has done. He's been exalted there as a reward for his saving work, for his permanent justification, his accomplishment of the permanent justification and redemption of the elect, of us. Now, I want you to see the significance of this. Christ, who, who has achieved our full and eternal redemption has been honored, he sits at the right hand of God precisely for that achievement. As Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 119 or 120 and following, he says this, according to the working of his great might, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul is saying there is that Christ is at the right hand of the Father as a reward for what He has done. Now here's what that means. Here's the logical thinking cap part, right? Here's what that means. Because that is so, Christ is at the right hand of the Father because He has accomplished in full and with perfection the redemption of God's elect. Were Christ's saving work to fail at one point? With even just one of the elect. One that, from our perspective, even, you know, that, that one's the least significant. If you were to fail at even one point, and all God's elect not be saved, it would require, listen to me, that Christ be deposed from his position of power and authority and honor. It would require that Christ return His reward, that He be unseated from His place at the right hand of the Father and impeached for His failure to accomplish the salvation of His people. And He would lose His own reward for all that He has done. It's not just about you. It's about Christ. His honor is at stake in your salvation. Since the God who knows all things and decrees all things and ordains all things and does everything flawlessly. Since he's already rewarded his own son for saving the elect in a perfect manner. It's inconceivable that anything could possibly go wrong with that salvation. Or God ceases to be omniscient and therefore ceases to be God. Do you want to know whether or not your salvation is secure? How secure is God being God? It's inconceivable that anything could possibly go wrong. It's impossible. And because that's impossible, so is any possibility of God's elect falling away. In fact, I want you to understand that, that, sit, that Christ seated, sitting at the right hand of God pictures that His work of redemption is now successful and it's complete. Like, like He's finished His work once and for all. That's the idea. Again, the writer of Hebrews, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, he's making this comparison, this comparison case between the Old Testament priest who had to continually offer sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice and the great high priest who is Christ. And he says these words in chapter 10, starting in verse 11. He says, and every priest stands daily at his service. They don't get to take a break, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, sat down at the right hand of God. He stopped standing. Waiting for that time, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are set apart to God. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these sins and lawless needs, there is no longer any offering for sin. It doesn't need to be. It's done. Who can condemn us when Christ is at the right hand of God? And last, Paul reminds us that from this exalted position at the right hand of God Christ is indeed interceding for us. what does Paul mean in this context that he's interceding for us? Now, sometimes people have the wrong idea here. They get this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ somehow pleading with the Father in heaven, pleading with him to, to, you know, bless his people as if Christ were some kind of junior God and didn't possess all authority in heaven and on earth. Or as if God isn't truly for us, as he's already demonstrated, that somehow he who has loved us from eternity still must be convinced by the Lord Jesus to bless us. It's the wrong picture. Sometimes others will picture some kind of ongoing legal proceedings that are taking place in heaven where Satan is continually, you know, bringing his charges against us and, and, and Christ is, is, is stands to act as our defense attorney and then God, you know, renders his judgment from, you know, the, 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 the throne. Right? I say this with all reverence. If that were the case, If that's like what was going on in heaven, there would be nothing else going on in heaven. No, really. There would be nothing else going on in heaven. Because there's no shortage of still remaining sin in God's people on this earth, is there? Is there? There's not a moment when someone who is Christ's child, the child of the living God, is not sinning. Considering the multitude of sinners that are yet in this earth. Isn't that true? And moreover, God does not need to make a declaration every day regarding you. He has made one for time and eternity. It's that you are justified. Period. He doesn't need to make that declaration again. It's made. Neither of these pictures do justice to to God the Father or to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul mean here? He simply means this, that in his place as risen king, the Lord Jesus Christ is actively interceding in our lives, intervening in our lives, in the lives of his elect children to ensure that every single last one of us will be finally and completely saved. He is continually ruling over providence. He is continually ruling over every single situation and interceding and acting on our behalf for. Our good. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. He says, he is seated at the right hand of God with all authority and power. And he is using all this authority and power for our benefit. For our salvation. For our sanctification. For our being more made more and more perfect. In order that we may be prepared for the day when he shall come again. And this will continue until that appointed time. Which is known only to the Father himself and not even to the Son. When God will send him back again into this world, he will come and will judge the world in righteousness. His enemies will be made his footstool, and they will be finally destroyed. The devil and all his followers, evil, sin, hell, everything opposed to God will be cast into the lake of final destruction, and he will usher in his great and glorious kingdom, and we shall be in that kingdom forever and ever. So who can... Condemn us when Christ is interceding for us. Beloved, listen, Paul wants us to understand. God wants us to understand. He never would have inspired Paul to write this. He wants us to understand that God's purpose, he wants us to understand that God's purpose to eternally love and save and justify and bring his people to himself cannot be overturned by any power, any authority anywhere in his universe. He is the sovereign judge whose verdicts are unassailably entered into the eternal record. Nobody can bring a charge against his elect because it's God who justifies. And no one can condemn anyone for whom Christ has died and was raised On account of which God has seated Jesus at his right hand of authority, power, and honor. God's election of his children and his exaltation of his son are intimately intertwined and they cannot fail. There's absolutely no way that once we've been justified, we can fall into condemnation again. No way for our salvation to fail. And this truth is guaranteed by our exalted kings continued intercession in our lives should you be secure yeah should you be confident yes should you you know be absolutely certain if you're in christ that your salvation is accomplished in simply awaiting the day in which it's fully revealed you better believe it or you fail to understand the truth of the word of God. So what do we say to this? Well, listen. God wants us to have certainty and assurance regarding our salvation, and that's why understanding and knowing the truth is so important. See, if I were to stand up here, you know, on Sundays and give you some feel-good stories and pump you up, and you know, send you out there, I'm going to tell you what: as soon as you met the first difficult thing, everything that I did here would totally vanish. And you know why? It's because it's worthless. To just stand up here and like pump up you and oh yay you and be your cheerleader and everything. Let me tell you what, like, you know, here's cheerleaders, cheerleader preachers do nothing, do nothing to actually establish anybody in the faith. Because the focus is not Christ. The focus is you and making you feel good. In making you, I'll tell you how you're going to feel good. Here's my goal to make you feel good. Preach the truth to you. You conform your life to the truth. You'll feel good. You'll feel good. When you struggle with fear, when you struggle with doubt and anxiety, when you struggle with uncertainty regarding your standing with God and his invincible love for you, listen to me, you don't go looking for an experience to make you feel better. You go to the truth. Go to the truth. You're the elect of God for whom, Christ ha, you know, for whom Christ has done and is doing everything necessary to ensure and safeguard your irreversible and permanent salvation. And so therefore, you do not need to fear any charge or condemnation. Then, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Look, the evidence is there. Again, like I mentioned to you earlier, there is fruit. Uh, there is fruit that tells you that you're the elect of God. You've got a changed heart. You, you, you recognize your sin and your guilt, your desperate need for Christ, and you turn away from your sin and you turn to Jesus and you trust in him for, with everything that you have as your only hope of salvation. You abandon any hope in yourself. You desire to grow in conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have an obedient trust that God's word is to be the rule of your life and of your faith. And even if you don't understand it, it's still the truth. That's imperfect, yes. And it's still growing. But that's the unfailing fruit of the root of election. If you're elect, you can't be condemned. You can't be. Well, suppose I sin. James Boyce answers this so perfectly. But suppose I sin, you ask. Don't say suppose. You have sinned and you will continue to sin. That's not the right question. The question is rather, did Jesus die for my sin or did he not? If he did, then the punishment for that sin has been undertaken by Jesus in your place. And there's no one, not even God, who can condemn you for it. Jesus took your condemnation. I do not mean by this that your sin is covered by Christ's blood. If you are among those who reject his atonement and scorn it. That is an unbelief that has never known faith. If you do this, you're not regenerate. He's right. And it's true that the doctrine of assurance can certainly be abused by those who do not truly know Christ and who treat grace as a license to sin and who think of the gospel as permission to sin because Christ covers it all. But just because someone might take what is good and turn it to a nefarious purpose does not mean that you don't preach the absolute truth of God. That's not Paul's intention in any, any way anyway here, that, that someone should take this and twist it. Certainly people do that with the truth of the Word of God. Look, at, Peter said, he said, you know... He said, our beloved Paul, brother Paul wrote to you concerning, you know, wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all of his letters and and he speaks in, in them of all of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take hand that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In other words, listen to this and hear it rightly. Yeah, there are people that hear this and twist it. That's on them. These words are not for those people. For the ignorant and for the unstable who twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. They are for true and sincere Christians who really do love God and really want to honor Christ. For God's elect, for those For whom the marks are there, our guilt, our condemnation before God has been eternally and justly eliminated. It has been replaced by an irrevocable declaration of justification through Christ. And so we can't live, we should not, we must not live in fear or anxiety as it regards our standing with God. You know why? I'm just going to tell you what, fearful Christians are not joyful Christians. They're not. They can't enjoy close fellowship with the Lord. Fearful Christians can't be bold in witness. They can't confidently disciple other people. They, fearful Christians can't have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? They don't have that abundant life that Christ has promised. Beloved, here's Paul's answer. Right here. To your fear and your doubt and your anxiety regarding your standing and God's love For you. You are His elect. He has declared you to be justified, and no one can condemn you because of what Christ has done. Again, some modern preachers. Think it a virtue and a sign of, you know, spiritual humility to be uncertain regarding your salvation. That somehow it depicts that you're real, man. You're authentic, man. You are just, you know, you've got modesty and meekness. Again, it's the exact opposite. It demonstrates that it demonstrates fearful unbelief. Those preachers. Those preachers that, that like to say, well, you know what? It is It is humble and it's, and it's modest to be uncertain regarding your salvation. The reason they preach that is to make themselves feel better. Because they are uncertain of their own salvation. Because they do not understand the gospel. Is that, is that too harsh? No. It's an example of those who twist the scripture to their own destruction. Beloved, we need to rest in the light, in the assurance that God's work of salvation for you is invincible. As the elect of God, you are in the place of greatest security. You've got no reason to fear. But, and I'll close with this, if you're not in Christ, you have absolutely every reason To fear. And to be anxious. The wrath of God is revealed against you, Scripture says. Against your sin and your unbelief. And you're on the broad way that leads to destruction. And I am pleading with you. To come to Christ today. To stop your foolishness. To take Him as your Savior and confess that He's Lord and He has authority over your life to humble yourself and to stop denying that you're a sinner and under God's just condemnation and come to the only one who can save you. Why will you perish when such a great salvation is offered to you? I'll close with these words. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Let's pray together, Heavenly Father, your word is life, it's truth it is it is it is the very foundation of reality, and I praise you for it. I thank you for a certain and sure salvation that is not established upon human philosophy, that's not established upon human emotion, that's not established upon, you know, circumstances and how I feel and how someone else... I thank you for a salvation for your elect that is firmly established on the bedrock truth of your word, your character, and of all that Christ has done to redeem for himself a people. Father, I pray that we would consider these words today, and I pray that my brothers and my sisters in this room, Father, that perhaps have struggled, even recently, with assurance, with with absolutely knowing, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that... It is because of your great sovereign love and your mercy. It's because of your election and the work of Christ that they are fully justified before you and that they cannot lose that position before you. I pray, Lord God, that you would encourage them today. I pray that you would give spiritual steel to their backbones. I pray, Father God, that you would make them to feast upon this truth and it would bring forth in them fruit and strength and life. Please, I pray for those of us that maybe haven't been struggling with this, that that even so, this word would be edification to us because we are surely going to face trials or difficulties or hardships, every one of us, that will call into question our assurance, that will make us wonder. God, I pray that this word would be the antidote to such fear and anxiety and worry and whatever else. And God, I pray for those that are in this place today that don't know Christ. I pray, Father God, that they would recognize the precarious place in which they stand right now before you, that they're under your wrath, they're deserving of your just condemnation and judgment, and if they do not turn to Christ and confess their sins and repent and receive Christ as Savior and Lord, that they will indeed be lost. God, I pray that you would move to turn their hearts away from sin and turn them to you. I pray that you would Father, just apply your word powerfully and, 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 Father, transformationally during this time. It's the work that only you can do in the, you know, your Holy Spirit can accomplish in us. So please do it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.